Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ben. Uh, Pastor Daniel asked me to speak this morning as a regular attender here and as a big part or a part of this big RUF attendance this morning. So anyway, uh, if you guys would stand out of respect for God's word, we're going to read Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. <clears throat> you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed a substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thanks, Ben. You can have a seat. Well, welcome again to Christ Central. Really glad you're with us. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we have been praying for all of the college students that are here this morning. Uh, from all the different campuses, and we're, so we're glad you're here, and uh, we're excited that the school year is beginning back and that you'll be a part uh, of our church. If this is your first time as a student or first time as a, 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 an attender, hope you feel at home, hope you feel welcomed, uh, and that you can come back and, and be with us on a Sunday morning. Uh, but Isaiah 40 tells us, which we quote often after the, the reading of God's Word, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word endures forever. Uh, and it's his word to us this morning, so I'm going to pray before we get into Psalm 139. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would speak to us, Lord, even as we just read, that you would search us and know us, that you would see if there be any way against you and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, you are a rock and a redeemer. We need to hear from you, so would you remove me, the one who preaches? Would you be see, uh, exalted? Would you be seen not just in our minds this morning, but inflame our hearts, change the way we live because we've encountered you. Would your spirit speak unto our spirits that our lives might be different because we've been with you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're nearing the end of our time this summer in the Psalms. If you are, haven't been here, we've been in the Psalms all summer long. And in two weeks, we're going to start a new series on the vision of our church. We'll, we'll spend six weeks talking about the vision and I, I'm excited about the new series, but I've loved being in the Psalms this summer. And particularly, I've really enjoyed Psalm 139. 
enjoyed studying the psalm, sitting in it, meditating. It may be a well-known psalm for many of you, but Psalm 139 takes what can often be our small view of God, a a man-sized theology, and blows up our small construct and gives us a God-sized theology. Yet it doesn't allow us to merely think of God and have a big theology of God that is detached from our personal lives and our experience in life. And isn't that what most of us are asking anyway? What difference does God, good and right theology, mean for me? What difference does it mean for how I live day in and day out? This is the preacher's task every Sunday, to take the beautiful, magnificent, God-sized truths of the Bible and bring them to bear on our personal lives. So I'm thankful this morning as the preacher that Psalm 139 does this by itself. It does not allow us to become detached theologically, and it does not allow us to become overly private and and individual apart from God. Psalm 139 declares who God is, specifically who God is to you. Frederick Buechner notes that God's first words to humanity in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 is you. And humanity's last words to God in the Bible in Revelation 22 is, Come, Lord Jesus, or in other words, come you. Deeply personal. See, the whole of the Bible, this grand story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is deeply personal. It's to know God and to be known by God. Some of you might know that when the Bible talks of God's knowing, it means more than just an awareness. When God is said to know, He means to know intimately, to join with. This is why the Hebrew uses uses the same word for know as it does for sex, because it suggests deep personal intimacy. So what I want to do this morning is raise our minds, raise our hearts to the magnificent truths of God in this psalm, and then prayerfully show you how they answer some of our heart's deepest questions. Derek Kidner notes that there are four theological truths of God in Psalm 139. The first truth seen in verses 1 to 6 is that God is all-seeing or God is all-knowing. That God is creator. Everything else is his creation. Therefore, there is nothing outside the scope of his knowledge and his sight. God knows when we sit down and when we rise up. God knows the sentences we will speak before we utter the first syllable. Truth. God is all-present. See that in verses 7 to 12. There's no place where God is not. He is everywhere equally at all times. If David goes up or down to heaven or to Sheol, if he goes east or west on the wings of the morning or to the sea, God is still there. Even in darkness, God is present. The third truth, verses 13 to 18, that God is all-powerful. All that God decrees comes to pass because of his great power. God is intimately involved in all of creation. Verses 15 to 16 even show that in single cell embryo stage, God values and is involved with his creatures. Verses 19 to 24, we see the fourth truth, that God is all holy. Now maybe you thought in reading of the passage has been read it, that these verses don't seem to fit the rest of the psalm. But David's praising God for the fact that God is a God of justice which we've seen this summer in differing psalms. A few weeks ago, Justin, who's the pastoral intern, and I co-preached on how God hates evil. And if God is creator, then we, the creation, cannot do with his creation what we like. God is just. 
You see, God is loving and just, both merciful and holy, and God love and justice embrace. Martin Luther King Jr. eloquently highlighted this truth when he said, power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. These are the four theological truths of God in Psalm 139. God is all-seeing or all-knowing. God is all-present, God is all-powerful, and God is all-holy. But as I said, these truths do not and cannot remain abstract. This psalm in the, is, is in the first and second person throughout. Some form of me or you is in almost every stanza. Each of these truths, I believe, answers a deeply personal question that every person asks. Here's the first question I think we all ask. Am I known? Am I known? David, the author of Psalm 139, writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. Being truly known and understood is a desire and longing for every person. I mean, how refreshing is it to have someone who hears you share with them and they respond, me too, me too. Right? There's a relief that comes in that statement because you feel like this person gets me. They understand me. We all long to be known and understood. And David says God knows you. God understands you. He doesn't just know you're going out and coming back. God knows your thoughts, your ways, your words. If we're honest about the truth of God's knowledge of us, it's not only comforting, it can be terrifying. That God's knowledge of us has this investigative thrust behind it. He investigates us. He He searches out our thoughts, our hearts, our words, our ways. God knows all that is true of our private lives. How terrifying is it to think about this scenario? That you have a notebook, and this notebook is filled with this past year's events, or this, just the past week. And, and the notes are not just of events, but of everything that you've thought, said, or done. This notebook that, that you have. And you accidentally drop it on Main Street. And you realize a few hours later, and so you run back in a frenzy to see a crowd of people reading your notes tweeting your notes, posting them on Facebook, blogging about them. What would you want to do? I know what I want. I want to run as far away as possible. I don't want to show my face again. Maybe I, I move out of Durham. I find new friends. I, I think this is why David is saying, where can I go from your spirit? In light of himself being exposed, David's thought about fleeing. He's thought about running. He's thought about hiding. It is scary to think about someone knowing all the private parts of our lives, everything that we think, say, or act. So what do we do? We learn our whole lives how to hide our true selves, how to justify running away from relationships where people are getting to know us. We run and we hide by our accomplishments and our performance. We run and hide by shutting down emotionally and disconnecting and withdrawing. We run and hide by by wallowing in self-pity or moving from city to city to city or by changing the subject of a conversation or even by outright lying. We've learned to do this because we've either been known by someone 
and hurt by them, so we no longer trust, or, or maybe and, this has worked for us in life so far, keeping people at a comfortable distance. Because it can be terrifying to be known. So here's the dilemma. We desperately long to be known in every way, to be understood, while at the same time we shake in fear about people knowing all of us. A couple of years ago, there was a New York Times article called My So-Called Blog, where the author describes a college student named Jay. And this is what the author writes. Jay's sense of private and public was filled with contradictions. He wanted his post on the internet to be read and feared that people would read them and hoped that people would read them and didn't care if people read them. So we all long to be known. So much so that we put some of our deepest thoughts, latest actions on the world wide web. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and at the same time we are frightened at the possibility of people actually knowing these things about us. Now here's why it's scary. It's scary because it's hard to trust what people will do with our deepest, darkest secrets. What will they do with them? Will these people know us and then leave us? Will they desert us? I think that's the second question that we all ask. Am I alone? Am I alone? David writes, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. David is telling us God will never desert you. Even if you want to be alone and you want to run away, he remains with you. He holds your right hand. Don't we all wonder if we'll be left alone? Why do you think freshman year at college is so scary? Why do most campuses cater to integrating and welcoming freshmen into campus life? It's scary because you've left what has been normal for 18 years of your life, and now you're entering into a, a, a new environment filled with a bunch of people that you're wondering, will they know me? Will they be friends with me? Will I be alone? Right? How about that Friday after classes start? There's a little bit of fear. Am I going to be all alone in my dorm room reading a book or watching a movie? Will I be alone? That's true for many of life's major transitions. You graduate from college and you move to a new city. You wonder, will I be alone? You retire from 50 years of work and you wonder, what will I do after work? Will I be alone? David says, even in Sheol, God, you're with me. It's pretty amazing. Sheol was a place where nothing praises God. Sheol is the end of days. It's nothingness. Do you realize that Christianity offers us a personal relationship with a God who understands death? That Jesus Christ was under the power of death for three days? He knows what it's like. He's been there. So even in death, by faith in Jesus, we can be assured that there is no place, even Sheol, where we cannot go, where our God is not waiting for us. Singer-songwriter David Wilcox sings, When I get lonely, that's only a sign some room is empty, but that room is there by design. If I feel hollow, that's just my proof that there's more for me to follow. That's what the lonely is for. Loneliness is experienced by everyone, and it's proof that we were created for relationship. Chip Dodd writes, Loneliness 
arouses an emotional and spiritual hunger to be received, known, and loved by another. It is a hunger to be accepted as we are. Loneliness awakens us to our emotional and spiritual longing for God. In our longing to not be alone, David is telling us we have a God who is always present, always holding our right hand. And then he continues in verses 13 to 18 that tell, the, tell us that God's not only present, but God loves and accepts us. That's the third question that I think we all can ask is, am I loved? Am I loved? David writes, for you formed my inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The power of God who created the whole world, it's the same power that he poured out in his creation of you. This language here in Psalm 139 is, is language and imagery of a potter shaping and molding a unique piece of art. I was talking with someone recently who's an artist, and they told me that great artists make art for themselves just because they delight in their art. Now, there's a place in which you showcase your art, but, but artists delight in what they make. God's the potter. We're the clay. He molds and He shapes us. He writes our story. Each one of you is unique and special. God delights in you. He rejoices over you. He is proud of you. He loves who you are and what you are and what you mean in and for the world. And we can deeply doubt and disbelieve that we're beautiful, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in our entirety. God delights in us. We are His artwork. You know, when I was being examined for ordination as a minister of the gospel, I was asked this question on the floor of what's called presbytery. Daniel, if someone were to come up to you and ask, and who, who is struggling with an eating disorder, where in Scripture would you take them? And I immediately responded, Psalm 139. Fearfully, wonderfully made. Our, our insecurities that we all have, our own self-hatred, about the things we dislike about ourselves, I believe is rooted in an unbelief that God loves us and that he actually loves every single thing about us. Amen. Brothers and sisters, God really does rejoice over you like an artist over their art. The Old Testament prophet Zephaniah writes, God sings over you. He rejoices over you, not in who you should be or who you think you should be, but in who he created you to be. So if God is all-knowing of you, ever-present with you, and loves you thoroughly, what does it mean then to be in a personal relationship with this God? I think we have to ask that question. What will happen if I am in a personal relationship with God? Look at verse 19 and 21. It can seem out of place. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Do I not hate those who hate the Lord. When you enter into personal communion and relationship with the God described in Psalm 139, you find yourself growing in your love for Him, loving His ways, hating all that is opposed to Him. As you grow in a relationship with God, you will grow in personal holiness and purity. Let me try and show you how this happens. There are a few men uh, that Timothy and I spent nine days with a few years ago. And they got deep into our lives, personal lives, to know us. They've stayed in touch with us. They continue to love us. They speak encouragement and delight 
in us. And you know what I find myself doing? Speaking extremely highly of these men to others. I find myself telling their story to other people. I find myself honoring them. The fellow pastor texted me this past week asking me about one of the guys, and he said, what do you think? And my immediate text back was, love him, <laughs> love him. And as I think about marriage or even a close friendship, the more your spouse or friend knows you, stays committed to you, delights in who you are, then the more you will find yourself loving them, delighting in them, defending and honoring them. But all earthly relationships will fail you. No human being is always knowing, always present, always loving. And if we are affected by our earthly relationships in this way, what do you imagine happening when we realize and live into a relationship with a God who is all-knowing, all-present, and all-loving? We grow in our love for Him and our love for His ways. We want to honor Him, defend Him, seek His glory in the world and in our individual lives and the ways we act and think and speak. And we'll ask Him over and over because we are loved by Him and we love Him to search us, O oh God. Investigate my heart. Lead me in your ways. David prays at the end of the psalm, see if there be any grievous way in me. This could also be translated, see if I vexed you in any way. The meaning is not see if I'm right or wrong, if I'm moral in all my ways. The bigger question when you come into a relationship with God who knows you and is present with you and who loves you deeply is, have I vexed you? Have I made you sad? Have I caused you pain, oh God? Life in a relationship with God is being loved by Him and loving Him. And if we're loving God, then we will be deeply grieved when we make Him sad. And God is sad when we disobey, and when we think His ways are not as good as our ways. He is sad because He loves us. And he wants to be in a relationship with us, yet we often choose other ways than his love. Deep grief over breaking the heart of God is the beginning and the foundation of repentance. You see that in Psalm 51. And then in our grief, we lift our eyes and we behold the greatest display of love ever. The provision of his only son, Jesus. And we trust Christ the one who was tempted in every way yet without sin. He knows all of our struggles. The one who was left alone by his disciples, denied by his closest friends, hung on the cross alone, bearing the weight of the sin of the world. The one who willingly left the love of the Father and the Spirit, the eternal love of God, to come and take the curse and wrath for the judgment of sin on the world. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be known by God and to know God. To love God and to, and to be loved by Him. To repent, trust Christ, and then live out what is true of us in Him. Do you realize that the one of the most common phrases in the New Testament describing a Christian is in Christ? In Him, clothed in Him. It's the image of union. To be united to Jesus. That everything that is true of Jesus is true of those who trust in Him. Christ's righteousness, ours. His holiness, ours. The love that the Father has towards the Son, ours. 
The Father looks at us and sees Jesus. We are in Him, hidden in Him, clothed in Him. I heard a pastor in Los Angeles who's a friend of mine, Rankin Wilburn, describe union with Christ, being united to Jesus like this. Imagine that your parents are mean and critical, that you've always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day you find a dusty trunk in the attic. You quietly pick the lock and you open the trunk and discover papers that prove you had in fact been abducted as a baby. These aren't your parents after all. Why, they are criminals. You discover that your real mom was a world-famous painter, your real dad a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, and a professional baseball player. (laughs) And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I am extraordinary. I knew it all along. You also read that they were extremely wealthy. And there is a large inheritance waiting for you. This is a good story, and here's the point. Such a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything about your life. Where you came from, your true identity, your capacity, the resources available to you, your future, your destiny. After that day, your life would never be the same. The gospel of Jesus gives us incredible confidence that everything is true of Christ is true of us. Therefore, with gospel confidence, knowing we are in Christ, we approach our Father in heaven and we ask him to search us, to investigate our hearts without fear, but rather with a longing to live out what is true of us already, a life that honors God. David knows that because God loves him, he need not be afraid. And he has the confidence to ask God to search him. He actually wants God to search him so he can honor the one who has loved him. This is the offer of the gospel to all of us this morning. Not mere theological truths detached from our lives and never void of theology, mere sentimentality. The gospel declares to us that God is all-knowing, all-present, all-loving, and all-holy. And in particular, he is those things with you. One of my favorite books that I read Henry at bedtime is a book titled On the Night You Were Born. It's a great book. So let me close by reading the last two pages. And may you hear God speak these words over you. For never before, in story or rhyme, not even once upon a